This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman. Later this hour, we're expecting President Trump and the White House Task Force on the Coronavirus to hold a briefing. If and when that happens, we'll take you live to special coverage from NPR. The fight against the spread of the novel coronavirus does continue around the world. This morning, a spokesperson for the World Health Organization said the United States is seeing a very large acceleration of cases. Here in Hawaii, as you heard from Derek, the numbers continue to climb, though still not at the pace of areas such as New York, California, or other locations. And as you heard, last night came word of the first death in the state because of COVID-19. While health and safety remain the focus, the economy is another concern. Here in Hawaii, the closing of bars and clubs, tourist attractions, restrictions on restaurants have led to a spike in job cuts and furloughs. We'll find out more information about that tomorrow when the latest jobless claims numbers come out. But we know that the stay-at-home orders and other measures are hitting small businesses especially hard. Some relief for small business is part of that legislation inching toward approval on Capitol Hill. But here in Hawaii, many businesses need immediate help. And the Small Business Administration has some tools, including a special loan program. We got details on that from Jane Sawyer, the director of the Hawaii District of the U.S. Small Business Administration. She said the program is designed to meet a very pragmatic, basic, and urgent need. This economic injury disaster loan program is to make sure that we have small businesses have the working capital they need to survive this unprecedented uh, pandemic situation. Um, we know that their customers aren't coming, um, that we're in, seeing very, very unusual conditions for them to operate in, and that uh, just their revenues are not are not there, and we don't know when they'll be coming back. So the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program helps small businesses replace some of the capital that they're lost and unable to pay their fixed expenses over, say, the term of this uh, pandemic and then the recovery time. So it isn't to build a business, start a new business, um, add on to a business. It really is designed to look at, okay, in this period of time, you may have dropped, your revenues may have dropped in half and you cannot pay your rent, meet your payroll, um, cover the cost of your inventory, continue your business operation, um, because resources aren't available to you. So this loan will help you evaluate that and get the capital you need to help your business survive and recover. Now, you use the word survive, and that seems for so many the, the matter of, of survival. You know, DBED talking about more than 8,300 businesses in Hawaii with 99 or fewer employees, a lot of them geared around the service industry. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, again, one part of this economy that's come to a screaming halt. Yes. And, and so many of those businesses are service businesses, um, hospitality industry, restaurants we know are, are kind of shuttered right now unless you're doing takeout. So this, this money lo- will look at, or the money that you would get from an economic injury disaster loan, will look at, okay, what have, what have your losses been from, say, the start date of this incident, which we're looking at, say, January 30th, 2020, and continuing um, for a couple of months? Look at, look at what your revenues have been 
and what they were at the same term last year, what is the difference? Then what are your costs, the actual costs that you have, um, you know, for those fixed expenses, your rent and your overhead, your inventory payroll costs? What can you not meet? This loan is designed to help you fill that gap for the foreseeable future, the anticipated future that it will take us to hopefully come back from this. We hope it's quicker, but this is to kind of help stop some of that loss, that, you know, that economic drain um, that so many people are feeling. Now, you'll, they will, the, when you submit your application online, they will look, you know, a little bit your credit history. They will look at your repayment ability. They will look at if, you know, you have collateral because they'll, they'll look for that guarantee and collateral for any economic injury disaster loan over $25,000. Um, and these loans can go anywhere from, say, that level or $5,000 all the way up to two million. And because of the nature of the uncertainty that we're dealing with, nobody sees knows what the endpoint is going to be. Presumably, the Small Business Administration, as part of the federal response to this disaster, is going to be uh, looking at this on a rolling basis. Yes, you know we'll have to be flexible with that. We will be looking at generally what type of industry it is and how will they be able to you know, kind of bounce back or what is the, what's the expectation. But there will be a lot of flexibility. Um, there will be, um, you know, we do have a long history of making these economic injury disaster loans, but this is a highly unusual situation. There are so many uncertainties about that. It, and you mentioned in terms of past business disruptions and particularly in Hawaii, is there anything that gives us any clues as to how certain aspects of this may play out for small business? Well, we probably look back, and most of these have been physical disasters before. So we look at, you know, okay, the Kilauea eruption, the floods on Kauai, um, some of the bigger hurricanes like Hurricane Iniki. One of the benefits of this loan program is that it is a fixed fixed rate long-term loan. So even if you get a loan of $25,000, for example, that the term can be up to 30 years. So your payments can be very nominal. So of course, it's going to give you the time to rebuild and really extend that payment over quite a period of time. There's no prepayment penalty. So some of the terms are very, very good. Um, and it can, it can, be packaged in a number of different ways, but SBA will work with every small business on a case-by-case basis, considering what their conditions, what the industry, and things like that that need to be considered. You've seen such a, a number of different situations cycle through here in Hawaii with business conditions and disruptions. There is so much here that is unknown, as we keep saying, but mm-hmm. any any broad advice generally for small business owners at this point? Boy, that's a, that's a great question. I think the, the, the most important thing right now, you know, we've seen across the board, health and safety are the top priorities. But I also think that the other leg on that stool has got to be the economy because that is how we are going to, you know, we've got to be resilient and recover so that we can um, 
you know, maintain our lifestyle and maintain the quality of life. Um, I think the thing right now is to pay attention, be responsive, um, and really it is, I, I think we're blessed to have the experience of Aloha here that it's, um, we can watch out for each other, be collaborative, um, and uh, that's the best way to really help sustain our community, our neighborhood, our tribe um, together. So uh, take advantage of the loans, use the resources that are available. SBA expects to be open and operating and responsive. Our resource partners also who can help the small businesses who, you know, I'm not really sure I understand how to determine, you know, these dollars or, or how can I tweak my business to be more responsive. These are um, trained professional consultants with great ideas and a lot of skills that they're there to help these small businesses. So we'll be doing a lot of things online, a lot of webinars, um, gearing up over the next next week. I think initial response, as I said, health and safety first, but we got to keep an eye on um, our businesses because that supports everybody's livelihood. That supports the jobs, you know. That's that's a key in staying well and healthy too. So it sure is, Jane. Thanks so much, and thanks so much for the work that you're doing, the Small Business Administration, and the Hawaii piece of that. And uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Bill. Jane Sawyer is the director of the Hawaii District of the U.S. Small Business Administration. You can get details on the SBA's Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, the one we were talking about, at sba.gov, and you can get help and advice from the Hawaii office of the SBA. We'll have contacts on our website at hawaiipublicradio.org. As we continue to deal with COVID-19 here in Hawaii and in the United States, we're also keeping you in touch with a global perspective on the situation. And for the latest developments on that, we bring you a roundup from the BBC. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Tuesday, the 24th of March. I'm Jackie Leonard with the latest on the pandemic. Japan postpones the 2020 Olympics. Spain is on course to having more coronavirus deaths than China. And Chinese officials say the city of Wuhan will end its lockdown next month. After weeks of speculation, Japan has finally bowed to the inevitable and agreed to postpone the Tokyo Summer Olympics because of the coronavirus pandemic. Our sports news correspondent, Alex Kapstick, explains. On Sunday, the IOC released a statement in which they said that they would look at postponement, but they wouldn't make a decision for a maximum of four weeks. And people around the world, athletes, were saying, look, we can't go out, we can't train, we can't compete. Uh, we need some clarity on this. Clearly, that has hit home. They've had this conversation uh, and they've agreed that the Games will be postponed until 2021. You know, if the virus continues to spread and it's not contained, obviously they'll have to think again. But clearly they had to make some sort of decision. The Olympic postponement will be costly for Japanese businesses. The banking firm Goldman Sachs has estimated the country could miss out on more than $4 billion in revenue as a result. But companies around the world have been sacrificing and doing their bit throughout this pandemic. For instance, health officials have said millions of breathing ventilators could be needed to treat people with the virus, and major car makers are helping meet that demand. Our reporter Nick Miles with the details. Companies like Fiat, they're 
changing one of their plants in China to make ventilators. The Mahindra Group in India, a big tractor maker, they're doing likewise. Nissan, Formula One teams, General Motors in the States. They're all saying that they're going to make ventilators. But there's a lot of scepticism as to how quickly this could actually come into place. One US Department of Security official has been telling the Washington Post that it could take many months to come into effect. No industry is being put to the test more than healthcare. Medical workers around the globe are on the front lines of the coronavirus outbreak. Dr Nabir Shahib is a pharmacist in the Iraqi city of Karbala. He said doctors and nurses simply don't have the facilities or the equipment they need. It's already out of hand here. We have very bad medical system. We have uh, many cases rising every day and we don't have any place for the isolation, not enough the medical supplies also. Our hospitals is not prepared for the virus, you know. In Spain, the number of new cases continues to rise. The country's now on course to have more coronavirus deaths than China. Soldiers called in to help at old-age care homes have found several elderly people dead, abandoned in their beds. Dr Dunia Hernandez was treating patients near Barcelona. Five days ago, she tested positive and was put under quarantine. Here she is on the strain faced by Spanish hospital staff. At the beginning of this whole crisis, every staff that had been in contact with a positive COVID case was sent home for 14 days. But today it is assumed that we have this contact every day and only the staff who show symptoms are tested and only those positive go home for 10 days. This means you can be in the incubation period and still be working. The scary thing of it all is that one in four infected by COVID-19 is a health worker. And if we start getting infected, we will not be able to attend the demanding patients. There are a few countries on earth that have remained untouched by the coronavirus. Now Myanmar has said at least two people there have tested positive. Our Southeast Asia correspondent Jonathan Head has the details. With a population of 54 million and one of the world's most poorly resourced public health systems, Myanmar's vulnerability has long worried health experts. There's been widespread scepticism over the official statistic showing no infections. Now Myanmar has its first reported coronavirus cases. Doctors at one of Bangkok's top hospitals have issued a stark warning to the people of Thailand that if stricter social distancing measures are not immediately implemented, they will see more than 300,000 cases within 30 days and more than 7,000 deaths. As Myanmar announces its first official cases of coronavirus, the number of new cases in neighbouring China is in sharp decline. The authorities in Wuhan, where the virus was first detected, have said they'll begin loosening the city's strict lockdown conditions on the 8th of April. Connor Reid is a British citizen living in Wuhan who contracted the virus last year. He said the lifting of restrictions would be hugely welcome. Obviously, when the quarantine measures are over, um, people are still going to be cautious. People are still going to wear masks and practice social distancing. It's not going to go straight back to normal straight away. But people are definitely looking forward to going out and looking forward to just doing the things that they were doing before this happened. It's having that freedom of choosing to do that. Um, I can if I want to. At the moment, I can't. Connor Reid in Wuhan. And that's all for now, but we'll be back tomorrow with another coronavirus global update.
do expect a briefing from the White House a bit later this hour, including President Trump and the members of the White House Task Force on the Coronavirus. We'll bring that when it happens. But at this point, we continue to look at different perspectives of this story. And this one concerns not just physical health, but also emotional health. You know our analyst Neil Milner, who often has context on politics and government in his regular segment, The Long View. But today he's got something different, the importance of connections in this time of social distancing and a sense of place. And Neil, the, thanks for, for joining us by phone today. And sure. the starting point for this is a memoir involving a sense of place in California. Yes, it's a very short memoir. She's actually written a long memoir. It's by Susan Strait, who's a novelist who lives in uh, what's called the Inland Empire of California, Riverside County, San Bernardino County, just uh, east of Los Angeles. And it's a, it's a very short memoir it's on the KCET website, in fact. Um, and it's called Five Quarters of, a, of the Orange, A Sense of Place in the Inland Empire. And it's really about how the sense of place has developed over time in uh, in this community around Riverside, California, and Loma Linda, down in those areas, um, and how it's been maintained and how it's still maintained and how it's gone through some changes, but it's still very powerful. Now, I want to say this was written in 2011, so it's not about the coronavirus. It's not even about a massive uh, unitary crisis at one time, but it says a whole lot of interesting things that should make people think about uh, the sense of place in their own community, because the coronavirus doesn't just affect your health. The way we respond to the threat of the coronavirus affects our sense of place and our intimacy. It affects the kinds of everyday face-to-face relations we have with neighbors, with friends and loved ones. And so I, it made me think a lot about what those things might be in your own neighborhood. A lot of this, what you're talking about, of that, that sense of community, that sense of connection uh, in Southern California, in the area in the Inland Empire that you're, uh, that you're talking about, that the naval orange in particular has a big role, but also uh, there's a lot of discussion about fruit trees as well. Yes. Yeah, what she, she focuses on the, on the navel orange. She's a very evocative writer. And she says, if you look at the navel orange, the history of the navel orange, which really started in the United, in, in the United States, it started in that area, um, you find out that the navel orange and fruit in general uh, remains very much important as a sense of place to help keep a sense of place, even as the areas become much less focused. So here's, here's one of the things that seems to go on in, in this area. First of all, the, the orange is a kind of historical and a strong sense memory that people in the community still have, and that kind of unites them. It, it's cohesive. The second thing is that the, the community has had a history since it first started in the late 19th century, People planted fruit trees in their yards, not to make a lot of money. This was not sun-kissed, which ultimately ends up on it. People planting fruit trees in their yard and exchanging fruit. And this still has been very much a part of the sense of place uh, in the old neighborhoods, and now hopefully, she says, in newer parts of the Inland Empire, um, where people, fruit becomes a kind of sense of exchange. People have different kind of fruit trees. They give it to each other. It's, it's sort of a way to measure where you are with your neighbors, 
uh, in a very literal sort of sense, but also the seasons and, and all of those sorts of things. So in this neighborhood, the sense of place uh, is very much influenced by the existence of the memories of and the smell and taste of these foods. It's kind of mundane stuff, and it may sound kind of woo-woo, but it's very real, and it's a very strong uh, driver toward collectivity. It helps to form what social scientists often call a social infrastructure. A social infrastructure is a is a infrastructure that allows people uh, places to gather and meet one another, libraries, um, certain street corners, uh, churches, or whatever. And it, it appears as if this there are strong social infrastructures in this town that are based on this kind of sense of memory and this importance of the food tree. You know, as as you mentioned, Neil, this was written in 2011, so so way uh, before the the coronavirus uh, situation. But what you're talking about in terms of those those touch points, those areas of connection, that is all part of what is being disrupted right now in terms of sense of community across the country, and and beginning to here in Hawaii in terms of the stay at home. But also what you talk about in that point of connection of people to people, there is still a way to do that. And and I'm thinking beyond sort of the fruit tree, but even the, um, I don't know, pictures of views out the window for condo dwellers or or something like that. Something that does have that personal connection despite that social distancing. No, I think that's absolutely right. I think one of the interesting and amazing things is the sort of ways that people are trying to maintain those connections. I'm really careful about having knowledge uh, how neighborhoods, say, in Honolulu or in Hawaii generally are connected, because so much of that is idiosyncratic. So much of it requires living there and knowing it. But you certainly see that the rainbow pictures that you're referring to started in New York, I think actually in Brooklyn, and they're inspired by uh, Kermit the Frog's wonderful uh, Rainbow Connection song. People hanging them out as symbols. But people trying to help one another uh, without getting as much face-to-face. But, you know, this place has had, there's some similarities here to... I, I think to uh, uh, to the counties in the in the in the inland empire, people here often talk about exchanging food, right? Exchanging food. In fact, I was uh, today. I went out to walk somewhere, and I parked my car near my neighbor's house, not far from here. And I waved to him. And when I came back an hour later, someone—it was him, of course—had tied a bag of bananas, uh, unripe bananas, onto their car. So there's that kind of thing. This is a you know aloha neighborliness and a sense of watching out for one another. Those things get interrupted in a situation like this. Social distancing means interrupting those things. It means that intimacy becomes a threat in lots of ways. And I think I'm I'm really interested, and I think people, as they go through this, should be interested in, too, what are the small ways that we often take for granted that we're using to maintain the attachment. You know, the sexy ones, the big ones are are social media and all those sorts of things, which are vitally important for so many people. But it's these little things that I think uh, help that, that have to re the the little things that make up these social infrastructures that have to, uh, that get threatened and have to be replaced. I just want to say one thing about social infrastructure. 
In other disasters, uh, research has shown that people who are most harmed, who die first, are people who are isolated. And it occurs in neighborhoods that don't have this kind of social infrastructure where people lose track. So it's important it's important in small ways that Dr. Fauci, for all his brilliance, isn't going to have you much give you much advice about. It depends on how you live your life in the old small areas where you're now spending an uh, increasing amount of time. So uh, it's, uh, it's not just a fascinating question, and it's not just that she writes really well. It's, a, it's worth five minutes. It's all it takes to read. But that it's an important part, especially as this goes on for a while. It's very practical application, by the way, in passing. I must say gratitude to uh, to colleagues with fruit trees uh, here in HPR and elsewhere <laughs> yeah. as well. Uh, yeah. speaking all, of, I, of all I've got is, is uh, a bad basil plant and lots of parsley and rosemary, and that can only go so far. Well, as, uh, as I so, say, yeah. in terms of condo dwellers and sharing views, not just rainbows, but views out yeah. the window to folks on the mainland, that I know is something that's, uh, that's going on. But even the importance of, as you say, reaching out uh, the personal connections, even if that's, uh, if that's a phone call and, and connecting yes. in that way. Uh, you know, because although it is a time for social distancing, it's definitely not a time for personal disconnection. Right. And most of us have pretty good instincts about uh, keeping together with people. Um, but this requires a sort of step back, a sort of looking at the kinds of things that might be missing that are so much a part of our culture. In, in our own neighborhood, in our own neighborhood. And lots of times the most powerful things in your own culture are things that you just take for granted. They're just there. And now they may not be there anymore and you have to think about it. The essay on the orange is good because it's so evocative and it's so clear what seems to keep keeping there. It's a good learning device to get you to think about, hey, what's the equivalent in my own little neighborhood? Uh, what's the way that we bring people together? What was the symbol? What did people do when they moved into this neighborhood that said, I'm here now and I'm proud? Stepping back for that perspective and that sense of place. Neil Milner, thanks, Neil. Take care. Stay Stay safe. Okay. Neil Milner, retired professor of political science and contributing editor of our segment, The Long View. As we mentioned, we're waiting for special coverage from NPR, that White House uh, Coronavirus Task Force briefing. And meanwhile, we'll bring you today's Backyard Quiz. And in today's Backyard Quiz, we take a look at Hawaii's whaling industry. Whaling ships, mostly American vessels, began arriving in Hawaii in the early 19th century. At that time, whale oil was used for heating in lamps and industrial machinery. Whale bone was used in women's corsets, skirt hoops, various other everyday items. 
Whaling ships tracked and hunted whales around the world, in the Sea of Japan, the South Pacific, eventually even the Arctic. They frequently stopped in Hawaii to restock provisions, replenish their crews, and transfer their cargoes of whale oil. The ports of Lahaina and Honolulu became crucial stops for the whaling economy for decades. In just one year, 1824, more than 100 whaling ships stopped in Hawaiian ports, and the Pacific whaling fleet would quadruple in size over just 20 years. The whaling industry brought a lot of money and change to Hawaii. Its influence often generated conflict as the ruling chiefs worked to maintain order and establish laws to regulate drinking, gambling, prostitution, even horse riding on Sundays. As you might imagine, the missionary community also had some perspectives on all of this. Although the whaling industry was flourishing, the whaling captains, even in the Pacific fleet, were not Hawaiian, except for one. And what we would like to know is what's the name of the only known Native Hawaiian whaling captain? If you know the answer, call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. First one to get it right gets our reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawai'i's people and places. Updated property listings with photos and select virtual tours at locationshawaii.com. There are so many aspects to the continuing story of the novel coronavirus and fighting its spread here in Hawaii. Certainly medical workers are on the front line, but so are other workers, grocery stores, other essential services that remain in business. And that includes bus drivers. Honolulu Civil Beat has a focus on that today, and Civil Beat's Chad Blair joins us with more on that. And Chad, this really is another story from the front lines. It really is, Bill, and good morning. This is from Marcel Honoré, and he covers transportation for us. And he talked to folks at the bus company, at the handyman, at the Department of Transportation Services for the city here in Honolulu. And passenger counts, as you might expect, have plummeted due to the virus. Uh, when it comes to the bus, uh, cash fares are down by 40%, although I should note that most people that use the bus have a pass. And then in terms of the, the handyman, it's down about 25% in terms of passenger load. And a big reason for that is there has been a halt in social service programs, not all of them, but many of them. But still, uh, the bus and the handyman have not reduced their scheduled service. There are 900-plus bus drivers still on the job, and uh, but it's way down from the 200,000 people. It's amazing if you get it that much, but 200,000 people Typically, in good times, ride the bus every single day in Honolulu. Yeah, and that's an interesting point that uh, the bus schedules have not changed, uh, despite the, uh, the the drop in ridership and, again, people relying on that. But even on board buses, there is, uh, there is social distancing taking place. And, of course, the, the drivers themselves are, are vitally interested in that as well. Yeah, for example, on the older buses, you know how you have that yellow line that separates the, the driver from the passengers? Right. Well, that line has been moved back, and now it's the color red to get across. And that's a serious boundary. Those older buses have also been formatted to make clear uh, boundaries between passengers. The newer buses have a different seating capacity, so it's not as much as a problem. By the way, I feel I should just add uh, an update of the Department of Transportation Services you know, is assessing what they're going to do. There is a chance that 
the drop-off could change schedules, and I see now that there's actually a press conference scheduled later today. Mayor Caldwell, John Nouchi, who runs DTS. So we'll see whether that's an update. Uh, one other thing, though, about the social distancing, you're seeing a lot of drivers as well as passengers wearing those masks, those face masks, surgical masks, and, of course, uh, they are wearing, many of them are wearing gloves as well. Good news, no driver has yet tested positive. Yeah, and a uh, would not be uh, would not be surprising to see the uh, the schedules cut back a bit. Uh, certainly, and we'll uh, we'll stay tuned to see what uh, what happens on that. You know, meanwhile, in terms of the drivers themselves, though, just as a concern, as a safety concern, I know that they're 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 union folks, and and this is something that is uh, has been brought up. Is that right? That's right. There's discussions with the Teamsters. Uh, and they're looking at things like seniority. Uh, if they have to cut back on reduced hours, they're going to have to make decisions on which, which drivers are going to be reduced in terms of their workload or even laid off, as may be the case. Uh, but those negotiations, nothing has been finalized yet. Um, one possibility is to, to go to holiday hours, right? That's a, a, a much uh, lighter schedule for the bus service, but still uh, no update on that. But Again, that could change if the ridership continues to plummet. It's a uh, it's a, another speaking of things of waiting for developments on that part of this uh, massive federal program that is uh, inching its way towards a congressional approval, perhaps. Uh, involves relief on that uh, on that front too. I noticed Marcel mentions in his piece that the American Public Transportation Association is calling on Congress to approve a uh, a bailout to help deal with some of these uh, these strains on on buses and transportation generally. Yeah, absolutely. And as he also includes in his reporting, there are other cities that have already started reducing their public transportation. That includes Boston and Seattle. Seattle, of course, somewhat of an epicenter of coronavirus. But yes, they, like so many people, are seeking a congressional bailout. Hopefully we're going to have an update from the Senate or perhaps even the president today. Uh, But that is on hold for now. All right. Well, thanks, Chad. Chad Blair, Honolulu Civil Beat Politics and Opinion Editor. Thanks for coming along today, Chad. You can read the entire story from Marcel Honoré online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Par Hawaii, an energy company extending aloha and mahalo to their employees and to all the people who are working to keep Hawaii's communities healthy. ParHawaii.com I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, COVID-19 means a spike in remote schooling and working from home. For the majority of us, I think it's going to be pretty painful personally with all the loneliness. And with all this decreased activity, a silver lining in the black pandemic cloud. I would say a 20% improvement in air quality. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Starting tonight at 7, following Counterspin. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Life, serving Oahu, Maui, Kauai, and the Big Island of Hawaii. Listings and information at hawaiilife.com. 
Susan Hassenmiller is a nurse by training, but one day three years ago, she found herself on the other side of the healthcare relationship when her husband was severely injured in a bicycling collision. The care her husband received and the occasional lack of compassion she felt became the subject of a new book, Resetting, an Unplanned Journey of Love, Loss, and Living Again. She was on Oahu earlier this month and spoke with the conversation's Jason Ubai about her story and the importance of compassion in healthcare, a story that has a particular resonance in these days of the novel coronavirus. Going back to my beginning nursing career, I certainly took care of a lot of people and a lot of people who were in the process of dying and who did die. And i really here to talk about compassion on the front lines because three and a half years ago, even though I was used to as a nurse taking care of people who had died and dealing with grieving families, I really didn't know um, until it happened to me three and a half years ago where I lost my husband. I didn't really realize the true grieving response that people went through and how important it is as healthcare clinicians that we address people with as much compassion as possible. So that is why I'm really here. What were some eye-opening experiences? What made you think differently, moving from a professional to a personal role? So my husband was in a bicycle accident. We really don't know what happened to him. We know that he was found on the side of the road. We know that he was due at a certain time to pick me up at a medical conference that I was supposed to be at. And when that time came and then went, I was really worried because my husband was very, very responsible individual. And I had noticed at the end of this medical conference that I was at that a couple of phone calls had come in. And I looked down at my phone and I began to be very worried after 10, 15 minutes went by. So I decided to make a call back to that number. And when I called back, it was the trauma center of a local hospital telling me to come in as soon as possible, that my husband was in a severe bicycle accident. And when I asked to speak to him, the, the nurse in charge says, I really can't get a phone to him. And I knew that was a lie because I knew as, you know, we're all carrying around <laughs> cell phones. You can definitely get a phone to someone if they were able to speak. And that's when I knew it was very serious. When I came to my husband, I learned that he was an instant quadriplegic. Um, if you remember Christopher Reeves, uh, quadriplegia, couldn't really live without a breathing machine. That was my husband. And so it was very shocking to me to see that, I, of course, as I said before, I had taken care of a lot of these patients. When you're a family member, it is so completely, completely different. You go into family member mode. You still have your mind and wits about you, your medical background. And I had my expectations about how we would be treated. And, you know, it was, it was startling to me. My husband got really good clinical care, and I should say that um, this is not necessarily a good news story because my husband lived as a quadriplegic for 10 days, and then I had to be the one to turn off his breathing machine. So in those 10 days, it was quite startling to me to see as a nurse the, the, the clinicians, the doctors, the nurses, the, the, the residents, all these people gathered around their computers every morning 
talking to themselves and talking to their computers and looking at my husband's latest lab results, but not really coming into the room necessarily and, uh, and seeing my husband. There were a few people during that time who showed immense compassion, but my general impressions were in this era of precision medicine and artificial intelligence and you know, quality and safety and all those new things that we wanna make sure that we handle as clinicians, uh, the compassion piece was primarily missing and I was startled and saddened by the whole thing. I think that all of us are in the position where, of course, we would say, just save my husband's life, just save my child's life, right? We, we, we are in that position, first and foremost, we want the life saved. But in the meantime, remember that just days before, my husband was this, you know, six foot four, 240 pound man who was in the prime of his life, who was physically active. And, you know, I had all the pictures laid out on the bedside stand. And I wanted somebody to say, ah, so this was your husband. This was your husband. What do you think, you know, he would, because he couldn't speak. And so between not speaking to him and sometimes not speaking to me, it was uh, very hard to feel the care as I think as an initial nurse, I tried to convey to my patients. So I didn't feel the, the, the care factor, if you will. If you can go back, could you talk about some of the, the healthcare professionals that you thought didn't provide some uh, great examples of compassion for you? So there were, there were two nurses in particular who really provided a great deal of compassion. And when I talk about compassion, it's really interesting these days because, you know, as I talk about compassion on the front lines and I do presentations, I hear nurses and sometimes physicians come back to me and say, the healthcare environment is so chaotic these days. There's so much we have to do. The computers and the electronic health records and everything that we have to accomplish in a day, it's just too hard. I can't be compassionate. And I'm thinking, whoa, you can't be compassionate. Wow. But as I did a lot of research into this, I have learned and I have come to believe and know that you can show compassion in a few seconds. So the, the two nurses in particular that showed compassion to me, one in particular was a nurse anesthetist and she was the first receiving nurse in the trauma center when my husband came in. And afterwards, when my husband was all settled in the bed and had all these machines going and buzzing and alarms going off and I was just crazy with fear and worry, she came to me and she simply said, I hate that you're going through this. I wish I could take all this pain away from you. And she Susan Hassmiller, Senior Advisor for Nursing at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Her book, Resetting, An Unplanned Journey of Love, Loss, and Living, out on April 14th. You can listen to that entire interview at hawaiipublicradio.org.